privilege today to have Vernon Brewer with us. He is the, the founder of World Help, uh, just an incredible organization. Um, he is an expert on the persecuted church. He's been to these countries where you have the underground church, where you have uh, people who they don't get to gather freely like we do. You know, it's, it's behind closed doors and it's secret from time to time. And, and uh, just been excited to be able to have him come and share with us. World Help is the same organization that Lauren and I will be going to Guatemala with that organization in August to see villages there, to see how we can partner together with uh, villages there to provide churches in places that don't have churches. I'm excited about that. I can't wait for this trip. I've been <laughs> really looking forward to it. Mark will tell you that. Judy will tell you that. That uh, uh, Lauren and I are excited to be able to go with uh, World Help and see how we can be a support uh, to the church there in Guatemala. And uh, before Vernon comes, we have a video that he wants to share with you, and then uh, he'll come up right after that. I'm here at the North Korean border, just a short distance from labor camps where more than 70,000 people are being held simply because they are Christians. The stories of persecution I've heard here are absolutely incredible. Entire families are sent to prison for crimes such as owning a Bible or telling someone about Jesus. They are beaten with electric stun rods and forced to work 12 hours a day of hard labor with little food, water, or rest. But despite the risk of such horrifying conditions, the North Korean church continues to grow. The people of North Korea are choosing hope over fear. They know God's word is the only thing powerful enough to break through the darkness of the most oppressive regime on earth. That's why they're constantly begging for more Bibles. And we're struggling just to keep up with the demand. But today, you can help meet the physical and spiritual needs of persecuted Christians and other people in need around the world. Your persecuted brothers and sisters need you. People lacking the most basic daily essentials need you. So will you help those in need today and give them hope for tomorrow? It's the first time I've ever spoken in a church where the lead pastor was the lead guitar in the praise band. I love it. I love it. Great job. And it was also the first time I've ever been in a church that had both praise and worship music and uh, the old hymns. And I'm, I'm old enough to... You know, I have to confess, I, I missed some of those old hymns. And I leaned over. What's your name? Mark. He saved my life this morning. He made me a cup of coffee. He's my best friend forever. I leaned over to Mark and I said, uh, so you do the praise worship first. And then he said, yeah, but sometimes we mix it up. <laughs> so I love this church already. And I'm glad to be here, Stuart. And I'm looking forward to being with you and 
uh, Guatemala, I will be on that trip. And uh, right now, I'm on a book tour uh, from coast to coast. I'll explain it to you in just a minute. But uh, not only am I happy to be here this morning, I'm just happy to be anywhere today. I'm a cancer survivor, and I'm just glad to be alive. You know, the doctors told me, yeah, thank you, thank you. The doctors told me I had uh, cancer, uh, maybe, probably would not survive, go home and put my affairs in order, and I would never preach again. And nearly two years of chemotherapy and radiation, 18 surgeries and surgical procedures in and out of the hospital weeks and months at a time. And I'll, I'll never forget the day the doctor said, you're in remission. Aren't you glad doctors are sometimes wrong? So, Mark, here's the big deal with the coffee. When I had cancer, they, they had to remove a five-pound tumor from off my heart and lungs, and they severed the nerve to my vocal cords to get all of the tumor, and uh, they never grew back. And so through the miracle of modern medicine, they operated and injected Teflon into my vocal cords so that I could speak. And Mark, I gotta have coffee to warm that Teflon up or you're not gonna <laughs> hear me. So I said, I, I said to him this morning, I said, that was good coffee. He said, it's from Trader Joe's. <laughs> so thank you, Mark. I, uh, I'm here because the persecuted church has asked me to be here. Uh, I wrote this book, If I Die, and I'll explain it to you in just a minute, because they asked me to tell their stories. And um, so I'm here as their advocate. This is not going to be a feel-good message. You're probably not going to go home this afternoon whistling or happy. This is a sobering message of reality, and I apologize in advance, but I want you to know that I gave them my word that I would be their advocate. Um, so I decided to put all their stories in one book. These are for the most part, men and women that I have personally met, some that I've known for 20 and 30 years. And um, I'm, I'm going to read you one page of the book in a minute that will explain where the title came from, If I Die. It actually came from one of the persecuted Christians. And so I decided to go on a book tour and... Uh, my son, Josh, said, Dad, don't, don't charge any money for your books. I said, well, what do you mean, son? He said, he said nobody's going to pay you money for one of your books. I said, well, son, that's not very nice. He said, no, really, Dad. He said, I saw one of your other books on Amazon for a quarter. He said, and it was autographed. He said, do you know how embarrassing that is, Dad? So he got me thinking. I said, all right, I'm not going to sell it. 
So it's available out there today. If you if you don't have any money, you take one uh, because all the proceeds of what you give. And Stuart, I want to thank you in advance for you being willing to let me come as an unknown speaker and and do this for the persecuted church. But all the proceeds uh, are going to go to help the persecuted church. Uh, I was just in Ukraine three weeks ago where when I crossed the border with a member of the Romanian parliament, they showed me a truck that had 100,000 pounds of food that World Help had purchased and had. We have uh, helped 72,000 refugees stay alive with 17 of those, those trucks. And um, so it came time for the first church in, uh, on this book tour. And I was nervous. I, I really was. I, I almost slipped back to my old ways. You know how you have the hymns and then the praise. I almost went back to the hymns. And just put a price tag on it, and and God calmed my spirit and said, "Trust me." So after the service, it was a church out in San Diego, about this size right here, and it it was a church. Uh, after it's over, I went back to the table, and I'll I'll be happy to autograph the books for you this morning. That will add twenty five cents in value. <laughs> You have to commute your time to stand in line. Is it worth 25 cents? Uh, but so I'm thinking, you know, okay, God. And there's a little basket on the table where people can put their money. And uh, it's so cute. You know, I, I could tell some people that didn't have much. And uh, what little they gave was a lot for them. And then, but the first gift. The very first gift was a gentleman that walked back and put a folded check in the basket. I, I later found out he was a dentist. And when the check folded open, I saw it was a check for $1,000. And the Spirit of God said, just trust me. He said, I have my people who are suffering and I have my people in the United States who are prospering. You just give the message and let me do the work. And so I come in that spirit of humility today. You know, humanly speaking, there's only a few of us. Spiritually speaking, if we obey the Holy Spirit, we could see some incredible things happen for the persecuted church. I also promised God I would never uh, turn down a speaking opportunity for the persecuted church in a church just because of the size of the church. So I am thrilled to be here with you today. Um, Little is much when God is in it. 
And next week, I'm going to be in Virginia in a church of 2,000. And um, you know what I have found? Sometimes the smaller churches do more than the bigger churches. I don't know why. I haven't analyzed that. But I do know this. I wasn't in your church 30 seconds until I knew you had a passion for missions. I saw the map. I saw the scripture. I saw the pictures of the missionaries. I come in this service and see the technology. You're pretty high tech. Man, you got videos from Thailand. That's a big deal. Who does the tech around here? The IT. Mark, you do? Oh. Good job. Good job. So I want to thank you in advance for what you're going to do today to help the brothers and sisters who are persecuted. I want to read you one page. Someone suggested, Vernon, you ought to tell them, look, either buy the book or I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> he said, you'd sell a ton. This is the prologue. I said, I met Ping several years ago on a trip to Vietnam. Her story of persecution is the kind that haunts you for days and weeks later and in some respects still haunts me today. I'll never forget the look on her face as she recounted the abuse and torture she had endured for being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This 34-year-old woman had once been a Buddhist and lived in a monastery. She had been sick for many years, and when Ping accepted Christ, she was immediately healed from her disease. She is now an evangelist and a church planter, and when I met her, she had started six churches and had 47 more churches developing. One day, Ping's husband was asked by a new convert to help him destroy his family's ancestral altar. An informant turned them in, and the police videotaped them. The two men were arrested, and Ping, Ping's husband was sent to prison for months. She was left alone with her young children. This young woman had been arrested six times by the secret police. She suffered continuous persecution. She was beaten numerous times, detained for weeks at a time, and fined the equivalent of $250, which is six months' salary. The police beat her on the head every day for two weeks. She almost died. When she survived, they decided to tie her hands behind her back and throw her overboard from a boat in the river. Once again, she miraculously survived. The police then forced her to march up and down a mountain for days. She said when she could no longer stand the beatings, she would pray and ask God for strength. One day, the police publicly humiliated her by tearing off her shirt and parading her through the streets. She stood in that public gathering half naked with her hands tied behind her back and said, I live for Jesus Christ. If I die, I die for Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3 tells us to remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. When was the last time you heard an American Christian say, if I die, talking about persecution? It's unheard of, but not for the persecuted church. When I was in Ukraine three weeks ago, we also visited our partners in Krakow, Poland, and uh, we're helping refugees get through Poland and on to Germany where they have family waiting for them. And I spent a day at Auschwitz. And uh, where one million of the six million Jews were executed and gassed and cremated. When I stood in that room with those brick ovens that looked pretty much like two pizza ovens, I could feel the evil. And I saw the sign that said, never again. Really? And here we are again, watching one dictator trying to annihilate a neighboring country. And I know the Ukraine, I know the Ukrainians aren't suffering religious persecution per se because 80% of them are Christians. There are more Christians per capita in Ukraine than there are in America. Now admittedly, just like here, there's probably nominal Christians that, uh, they would not all be evangelical Christians. M most of them are Orthodox Christians, but they believe in a Jesus, they believe in Jesus. But they're being persecuted nonetheless. In fact, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor, who wrote these words in 1937. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How could he have known that he himself would be hanged in a Nazi concentration camp? His only crime, he was a Christian. Persecution of Christians around the world is more severe now than ever before. Most Christians in America feel like that was just something that happened in New Testament times. But because of communism mainly, the 20th century saw more martyrs than the previous 19 centuries combined. In Sudan, Christians are enslaved. In Iran, they're assassinated. In China, they're even beaten to death. In more than 60 countries worldwide, Christians are harassed, abused, arrested, tortured, executed, specifically because of their faith. It is estimated, no one knows for sure, and you can hear some statistics on the uh, lower end and some on the higher end, but it's been estimated, and I agree with this estimate, that 
Every five minutes, a Christian is killed for their faith. That's an average of 105,000 believers worldwide are killed each year simply for being a Christian. That means in the past 10 years, if those statistics are true, we've seen more than 1 million martyrs. I'm here to say to you this morning, a million martyrs is more than enough. These aren't wild rumors, nor are they simply Christians who suffer from war and tyranny. Hundreds of millions of Christians are suffering simply because of what they believe. Stephen was the first martyr. He was stoned to death. James was beheaded. Philip was crucified. Matthew was slain with an axe. James the less was beaten. Matthias was beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was dragged to pieces. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. And Simon was crucified. Only one, John, the beloved disciple, was the only apostle who escaped violent death. One authority writes, Christian persecution did not stop with the deaths of the apostles. It has continued throughout the centuries and grown dramatically in the past few decades. But make no mistake, Christian persecution is increasing, and in one way or another, it affects us all. My friend Mark Batterson, who pastors a church just a few blocks from our nation's capital, in the introduction of his book, Play the Man, tells the gripping story of the martyrdom of Polycarp, one of the early church fathers. It took place on February 23rd, A.D. 155, in Smyrna, Greece. Mark said, Like Jesus entering Jerusalem, Polycarp was led into the city of Smyrna on a donkey. The Roman proconsul implored Polycarp to recant. He said, Swear by the genius of Caesar. But Polycarp held his tongue. He held his ground. And the proconsul prodded, Swear and I will release thee. Revile the Christ. Then Polycarp spoke those words that have survived throughout the centuries that are now famous. He said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The die was cast. Polycarp was led to the center of the Colosseum, where three times the proconsul announced, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian, and the bloodthirsty crowd chanted for death by beast, but the proconsul opted for death by fire. 
As his executioner seized his wrist to nail him to the stake, Polycarp stopped him and said, He who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to do so without the help of your nails. As the pyre was lit on fire, Polycarp prayed one last prayer. I bless you because you have thought me worthy of this day and this hour to be numbered among your martyrs in the cup of your Christ. And soon the flames engulfed him, but strangely they did not consume him. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, Polycarp was fireproof. And instead of the stench of burning flesh, the sense of frankincense wafted throughout the Colosseum. And using a spear, the executioner stabbed Polycarp through the flames. And Polycarp bled out, but not before the twelfth martyr of Smyrna had lived out John's exhortation, be faithful even to the point of death. Polycarp died fearlessly and faithfully, and the way he died forever changed the way those eyewitnesses lived. It seems like every day we hear another news story of a church that is attacked, a missionary that is held hostage, or a Christian who's been murdered for their faith. But have you ever wondered why is it that the majority of the Christians in America seem not to care? One leader working with the persecuted church gives two reasons for Christians' relative lack of interest in the plight of suffering sisters and brothers worldwide. Number one, he said, American Christians, for the most part, are not interested in anything that happens outside of the boundaries of the United States and, in many cases, outside of the boundaries of their own communities. Number two, American Christians have no experience of persecution or suffering for their faith that remotely resembles the experiences of many of our overseas brothers and sisters. So it's difficult for us to empathize. And many, many American Christians refuse to believe what is reported because it's just so far outside of their own experience. When we leave here today, we leave here to go home to a day of rest and leisure. When the persecuted church leaves church, they have to make sure they're not being followed to make sure they don't get arrested. I've seen the actual scars. I've heard the heartache and sorrow in their voices. I've seen the suffering in their eyes. It's an unforgettable picture that is etched on my heart and in my mind forever. And I hope that God will never, ever allow me to forget. And although we live in a world of disbelief and mistrust, we as Christians cannot afford to be skeptics about persecution. Persecution is real, and it's happening all around us. We should be on our knees every day thanking God that this is not what we have to endure daily. We should thank God that we don't have to watch our wives or husbands or sons or daughters suffer immense pain and anguish and possibly even death just for their faith. 
But how are we as Christians to respond to the persecuted church? Does persecution really affect us? What is our responsibility? What can we learn from it? How can we embrace a persecuted church? Last month, when I was in Ukraine, I came back across the border to Aradia, Romania, where I preached in the largest uh, evangelical church in Europe, 3,000 people there that day. I have been going to that church for nearly 40 years. And the first time I went to that church, there were secret police outside taking the names of the people inside. And they sent the, the army to go bulldoze the church down. And the army pulled up with bulldozers. And the Christians locked them in the church, themselves in the church, and prayed all night until the next day the army people, they didn't want to do that to their own people. They just said no and went back home. Persecution's real for them. Someone suggested that when trying to make sense of persecution and martyrdom, four key reasons are usually given. Number one, persecution purifies the church. There are no nominal Christians in the persecuted church. There are no Sunday morning believers in the persecuted church. There are no casual Christians in the persecuted church. It's all or nothing. All or nothing. They are all in. It's life or death. Number two, persecution unifies the church. There are no disputes over minor doctrine or doctrinal issues in the persecuted church. They don't argue about which translation of the Bible to use. There are no struggles for power in the persecuted church. Number three, persecution strengthens the church. Believers in the persecuted church are bold and courageous because every day they're forced and compelled to take a stand for Jesus Christ. And number four, persecution grows the church. In 1950, when communism took over in China and missionaries were expelled, there were only one million Christians in the entire country. Today, even the government recognizes that there are at least 44 million Christians in China and some estimate that that number could be as high as 130 million. And the reason we do not know for sure is that many of them are meeting secretly in house churches. My late friend Samuel Lam, Ling Sing Gao was his Chinese name, spent 20 years in prison for his faith. When he was released, he was put under house arrest. <coughs> Excuse me. was holding six services a week in his third-story apartment. 3,000 believers in those six services. You know what he told me? He said, Vernon, please don't pray for the persecution to stop. Are you kidding me? Is there one person, including me, in this room that would say that? I don't think so. I said, why? He said, more 
persecution, the more the church grows. I'll never forget my first day in North Korea. You saw a glimpse of it on the video. As we drove over the Tumen River, our guide told us how North Koreans come to the riverbank and wait until evening to attempt the risky swim into mainland China. And the border guards have orders to shoot on sight anyone attempting to cross the border illegally. Our guide then added almost as an afterthought, he said, the Tumen River has probably witnessed more deaths than any other river in the world. Nowhere in the world is persecution of believers more severe than North Korea. I'm not even able to share with you many of the atrocities committed against these believers, especially the stories of how hundreds of Christ followers are executed each year. In one instance, when a group of church leaders would refused to reject Christ. The police directed that a bulldozer be driven over them, crushing them to death. The government is rounding up entire families up to three generations and throwing them into labor camps. A believer can be sentenced for up to 15 years in a labor camp just for owning a Bible, singing a hymn, or praying, all three of which we've done already today. And it's estimated that more than 25% of all Christians in North Korea are in the political labor camps right now. One out of every four Christians. And most of them die within three years of being in the labor camp. So it's actually a death sentence for them. So many Christians going to these labor camps will never come out. They're starved, beaten, tortured. One man who had been distributing Bibles throughout North Korea for years. When the authorities finally discovered what he was doing, they decided to make an example of him, and they beat him brutally over and over again until they killed him. For 20 consecutive years, North Korea has been ranked as the most oppressive place in the world for Christians. And although exact numbers are difficult to confirm, it's estimated that there are 300,000 Christians in North Korea and 70,000 of them are in the political labor camps. I'll be honest. I don't pretend to understand even a fraction of what these people are going through. But I do know this. If I were in their shoes, I would want to know that someone still cared about me. North Korea needs more Bibles. They need more churches. I believe God is challenging us today to respond to persecuted believers like those in North Korea around the world. It's long past time for us to just just leave here feeling sorry for them, saying, isn't that a pity? They don't need our pity. It's time for us to act. Christians all across the world must come to the aid of those who are suffering persecution because of their religious beliefs. My late friend, Luis Palau, asked, 
how many more Christians will have to suffer and die before we realize that it is our job to try to stop these atrocities. We are often so caught up with our own petty problems that we don't make time to think about Christians who are bleeding and dying across the world. There's so much that needs to be done. They need to have training to plant churches. In India alone, there are 50,000 villages without an evangelical church of any kind. We must train leaders to plant churches. They need to have buildings in which to meet. In most parts of Asia, they say, if your God is so great, why don't you have a place to worship him? They need Bibles. There are still millions of Christians who have never held a Bible, let alone one. And we can do something about that. They need prayer. Nothing of eternal significance is ever accomplished apart from prayer. I love the time you took this morning to spend in prayer. We must be mobilized to pray for the persecuted church. And finally, they need for us to follow their example. You say, what do you mean? The persecuted church does not understand our lifestyle. The persecuted church does not understand our materialism and selfishness and prayerlessness. It's a mystery to them how they can have so very little and love God so very much. And we have so very much and appear to love God so very little. If believers in North Korea and India and Vietnam and Thailand and all around the world are willing to die for Jesus Christ, surely we should be willing to live for Jesus Christ. In John 3.17, in the message translation, we read these words that are so timely for us today. It says, if you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. And in the words of the famous British abolitionist William Wilberforce, who helped bring an end to slavery in Great Britain long before it was ended here, He said, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. To whom much is given, much shall be required. I'm so glad that during COVID, when things came to a standstill, I am so glad I followed the prompting to put their stories down. It's not my book. It's their book. That's why I don't take any royalties. I don't make a dime. I paid my own gas to be here and drove five hours without getting in a wreck. That's that's a major accomplishment. Say, why? 
because I want to be able to say to my grandchildren someday, when they ask me, Poppy, what did you do to help the persecuted church? I want to be able to say I gave them hope. And you can do that today too. And I thank you in advance. And my prayer is that we'll do something special for the persecuted church this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Vernon. What a what a powerful um, just message this morning for us. And um, you know, I don't want us to leave here without really talking about and praying about: Are we ready to live for Jesus? You know, the persecuted church is ready to die um, for Jesus, and, and are we ready to live for Him? And I want us to pray around some of that this morning as we close. Um, the board has been reading a book together from Francis Chan called Letters to the Church. <clears throat> and one of the chapters there, he talks about how, <clears throat> excuse me, he talks about how um, he met with some of the persecuted church himself. And he wanted to hear their stories. And so they told these stories, but they, they told the stories with joy. They're excited that they were able to be, be persecuted for Jesus Christ. I mean, and then he said, we went to a time of prayer. And he said to hear them pray was not what he expected because they prayed that God would send them to the most dangerous places so that they could experience more persecution. <laughs> we don't pray that way. And so this morning, the four points that he gave about persecution and what it does... I want us to pray around that this morning for us as a body of believers. Maybe we need to confess to God that we're just a nominal, casual Christian and that we're ready to live for him today. Maybe it's you need to ask the Lord to forgive you for just disputing over minor doctrinal issues and struggling for power and asking the Lord to help unify us Maybe it's to ask the Lord to help strengthen us, to give us courage and, and boldness every day to take a stand for Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's to ask the Lord to help us to grow, to pursue purity, unity, and strength. Um, so, and please help Idaville Church to grow. I want to open the altar today. And I want to open our time of prayer. And you know how we do the worship-based prayer. As the Holy Spirit leads one at a time, you're welcome to pray uh, and ask the Lord for any of these things. And then I have another slide that has some action steps that we're going to pray, pray for. But again, the altar is open. God might be speaking to you today about one of these particular things. And I, wanna, I, want us to, I don't want us to leave here without addressing these things. We need to live for Christ. And so I'm going to get us started. And uh, again, as the Holy Spirit leads, you pray. And then I'll transition us into the action request then in just a moment. Lord, we, we come to you this morning.
And we confess that many times we are nominal and casual in our relationship with you. And we just say, we're sorry. Please forgive us. Lord, would you light a fire underneath each person here today that, that we would live for you in the same way that the persecuted church is willing to die for you. And so, Lord, we strengthen us. And we just ask this in Jesus' name.